and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. The key to activism is to stay active. Reading, learning, calling, writing, collecting and sharing information, using everyone you know to try to reach decision makers and advocating for change even when it feels out of reach. You have to imagine a world as you want it and start working to create it. Those are the words of Shireen Tadros, my guest today, who left a flourishing career as Sky News Middle East correspondent to become an activist. She's now the head of the New York Office for Amnesty International and its representative to the UN. And she has written about it in Taking Sides, an exceptionally smart, thoughtful, often funny and touching book. Welcome to The Bunker, Shireen Tadros. Thank you so much for having me. So nice to meet you. Uh, reading this book, I feel I I know you already, because <laughs> I have to tell listeners, it is everything they expect. So it, it is smart and politically engaged and makes a lot of very profound points about the world in which we live. But it is also an extraordinarily personal and touching and thrillerish book, actually. Um, I want to slightly unravel your your excellent non-linear narration and start at the beginning mm-hmm. um, with your family and your growing up. When did you begin to realize that you weren't seen as entirely British, that, that you were a halfie, to use your word? Yeah, no, thank you so much for that kind introduction. And And yeah, to start from the beginning, I think that it it was pretty evident to me from when I can remember, to be honest, that I I wasn't quite like the rest of my friends in London, um, that I felt that I sounded like them. Sometimes I even felt like I looked like them when I when I wore the clothes and and I bought the Carhartt uh, um, overalls that everyone was wearing and um, everything else. But then um, there was always there was always a difference. There was always a difference when on Sundays they would invite me to some party or some brunch and I'd be like, what are you talking about? I need to go to church and Sunday school. You know, what do you like to do on Sundays? Um, and, and how I spent pretty much every every school holiday from start to finish in, in Egypt and in the Middle East with, with my family. There was no day camps and overnight camps and, you know, whatever other vacations my friends were taking. We, we were very much um, surrounded by my parents in this sort of, you know, Egyptian culture that, that we're from. Is that Coptic Christian? That's right. There's a small minority Christians in Egypt, about 10% or so, uh, were called Coptic or Orthodox Christians. Um, and that's the community, the minority that I, I belong to. Because it was so fascinating to see your parents use phrases like inshallah and that stuff. But yeah. in their case, by you know Allah, they mean God. It's just an expression of Christianity in the Arab language. And I found that quite extraordinary. It really took me a moment to reconcile in my head. I kept going back and, and, and thinking, I thought they were Christian. Why are they saying inshallah? I love the dedication to your parents, by the way, who told you if you're going to put them through hell, you should at least write a book about it. I find that very <laughs> pragmatic. Right. I want to talk about your formative years and the realization that as as you write, the news didn't just happen, it was made. Was that enthusiasm at the start, that belief that you you could make a huge difference, the seed of your future disillusionment with journalism? 
I mean, maybe disillusionment is, is the wrong word, actually, because it is clear you still have huge amount of respect for journalists and you think it, it's an honourable and hugely valuable profession. Yeah. But let's put it no, no more strongly than you went off it. Is that, is yeah. that fair enough? Right. Or, or rather, I guess I realised it wasn't for me. Mm. I think that I I came to the realization that you have to be very honest about why you're going into these professions. And if you're going into journalism because you want to change things, change policy, make a difference in individual people's lives, then it can become incredibly frustrating. Not because mm. that doesn't happen in journalism, but because it's not your job to ensure that happens in journalism. Yeah. So I, I think that there are many honorable, great reasons to become a journalist those were not my reasons. You're a sort of wildlife photographer <laughs> that that you're you're just there to observe rather than um interfere. Um I was also really uh, affected by the prejudice that you encountered um back then. The the sort of the well-meaning condescension that you were really very good but w- you would never make it because your accent was unintelligible uh, and your face was the wrong face for TV. Uh, and that word, exotic, which really struck a chord with me, because even though I'm Greek, I got that word exotic for many, many years when I first came to this country. And, and as a matter of fact, I always tell friends, I mark the point at which I became fluent in English as the day I realized exotic was not a compliment. <laughs> so so yeah. tell me about coming up against that so early in your career. Yeah, I guess I guess for me there's a sort of subtle racism, which I describe in the book as microaggressions that we often don't really talk about. And that exists in those sorts of phrases like oh you're exotic oh I love your hair can I touch it all of these (laughs) things that essentially sort of point you out very quickly as being different and they can often be be even meant sometimes by the person as a compliment but just the fact that they're noticing it and they're broadcasting it can be you know quite embarrassing to to you at at the time and I know myself and and other friends who, who have experienced this over and over again and then there's the the more sort of you know situations like I describe in the book when I went for an interview at the BBC for an internship that wasn't even an on-air role but I get a phone call at the end of this grueling long process of trying to become an intern at the BBC to be told essentially you roll your Rs no one's really going to understand you this isn't really the kind of person you need and there there i am going but what do you what do you i was born in london i have i have a british accent no one has ever what accent are you i mean if i if i have an accent speaking speaking british like what am i what am i i mean my arabic is is like completely off the charge everyone's always <laughs> So where do I fit in, right? Because in Egypt, you're like, oh, you're such a foreigner, born in London, you know, oh, what's happened to you? But now in London, I'm being told, oh, such a foreigner, you know, and being called exotic as if I was, you know, a kiwi, a pineapple is exotic. A person is not exotic. So, Mm. you know, these, these sorts of things really, they eat away at you. They make you feel like you're different. And therefore, where do you fit in in the world? And I, and I hope that that resonates with, with a lot of people because, you Mm. know, essentially, although the story is about the struggle at the start, it's also trying to be quite inspirational and hopeful about where I end up at the end. As I often say, the last decade or so has not been a good time to look foreign. We cannot explore all the stops along the way. 
by the book, you lazy bums, but I want to linger at a couple. Let me take you first to Gaza. Anywhere but Gaza, Nick, please, you begged your editor. You reported from a lot of more dangerous places. What was it about Gaza that you dreaded? So the Gaza Strip, for those who don't know, is under um, an Israeli and Egyptian blockade. It is a strip of land that is very, very small, very, very narrow. And it is completely blocked off on the one hand by the Egyptians on, on one side of it, the other side of it by, by Israel. And Israel also patrols all the water. So you can only go out a certain amount of nautical miles into the water. Um, on one side, by the land, there are tanks that go all the way around and, and, and a fence. And then by in the sky, by, by jets that, that fly over and drones that surveil the, the territory. So it is the most claustrophobic place you can think of. Everyone in there is stuck inside. You are not allowed, if you're Palestinian, to leave the Gaza Strip. Um, so I had spent a few hours there um, and then, you know, sort of left when I, I just was, I was curious about it when I was covering a story in Jerusalem. And so when the opportunity came to sort of go back and actually report there for what was meant to be a day or so, I, you know, I sort of, as you said, begged my editor, please, anywhere but there. I mean, it just, it, it felt so hopeless. People, that you, you, can't, you can't go into Gaza and say, so where have you been? What have you been doing to, to someone? Where could they have been? You know, they could have gone 20 kilometers north or 10 kilometers south. That's it. It was it was a difficult place, and and I and I felt you know so much guilt there when I when I was when I was there even for a few hours. You write that Gaza had a way of sucking the happiness from you, which I think is quite a telling um, yeah. sentence. The next point of your journey at which I want to linger is Tahrir Square. Did your family heritage make that a particularly difficult gig? Yeah, I think or an easier one maybe. I don't know. Well, yeah, I think I think it made it a lot more personal, right? So we're talking about the fact that growing up and going to Egypt, I always had this sense of growing injustice because of what I could see happening under the then president Hosni Mubarak and this sort of complete corruption and stifling of, of freedom and, 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 and all sorts of freedoms and rights. Um, and in, in many ways, I think I became an activist at the end because of what I witnessed as, as a child growing up in, in Egypt. Mm. So then to, to go back as a journalist in 2011 and be there witnessing the downfall of this president and people speaking up for the first time you know, I'd grown up in a world in Egypt where no one would mention the president's name, let alone talk about him, you know, swearing, you know, in, in his face mm. and throwing mm. their shoes at a picture of him in Tahrir Square as it was. So this was this personally an incredible moment. And I think I felt the gravity of it perhaps more than, than, than you know, journalists who hadn't covered Egypt or hadn't sort of had this experience with it. So it, it, it felt like my revolution. It didn't just feel like a revolution that I was covering. You got badly trapped and injured in the protests there. I mean, how do you go back to work the next day after that? I, I once heard Alex Crawford yeah. say, speaking of Marie Colvin, I think, yeah. um, that conflict correspondents are all adrenaline junkies. Mm. W was that true for you? I think that there is an adrenaline, adrenaline that comes at, at, at the moment um, especially with broadcast when you have to be 
so together, so articulate, um, not mm. afraid, not not sort of um, stammering. You have a job to perform, right? And especially in Egypt, I felt that the story was much larger than what was happening to me on a daily basis. Mm. So I, I sort of felt that sense of purpose to continue. But I think, you know, what happened to me in, in, in 2011 when I was um, sexually assaulted I think part of that is just a survival instinct that those of us who have survived these kinds of assaults have to have. You know, I think mm. that it took me many years to forgive myself for giving up on the struggle of that moment when these men were 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 on top of me and just sort of relenting to it. And then there was a part of me that couldn't really, I guess, didn't want to admit what had just happened. And in a way, it was easier to just keep reporting, to keep going mm, um, mm. Up until the next day when, you know, I could start feeling the scars and, and the after effects of it. And it started to become more real what had gone on. But, you know, I write in the book about this, in, this incredible moment where all of this is going on. I'm saved by this, by this very kind man who pulls me out of this crowd of men. And I never am able to track him down and thank him for what he did. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it, it is our instinct to survive, which makes our story less believable. Because I was very afraid after that, who's going to believe that I was assaulted when about 15 minutes later, I was doing a phone interview live on TV and I continued to broadcast live for about 12 hours mm. after that. Who is going to believe that this is someone who was, who was just, you know, caught up in this, in this terrible thing? You may not have that experience as, as a victim or a survivor, you know, that you were in the middle of a revolution and then you did this, but every victim or survivor has that story of survival, of that, of, of, of having to push through in that moment to survive. And that story, and, you know, and that is often why it makes it feel unbelievable that this happened and people question you. And I wrote that story in there and I kept it in there to, you know, try and, and, and explain sort of how it felt for me and, and, and hopefully help others who have been through that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's powerfully told. And, and there are actually a lot of moments that are powerfully told because I can sense almost in the book that you switch into journalism mode for those moments and you report them actually quite coldly, quite factually in some ways, which makes them even more powerful because I know reading it that this stuff happened to you, right? You're not, you're not just writing a story about someone else. Um, and, and then comes another huge moment, really the moment that changed everything. Your fiancé breaks up with you on the morning of your wedding day with the words, I just don't think I love you enough. I mean, how the fuck do you come back from that? <laughs> Seriously, I mean, yeah. what kind of survival instinct do you have in you? Yeah. That two days later you were interviewing for a job. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, similar ones to the ones I trained in me years before, right? Which is just this cataclysmic event has happened, maybe not in politically and in the world, but now in my personal life. But I also don't want to romanticize or give myself too much credit because at the end of the day, I also describe a complete meltdown and breakdown where, you know, I, I, I really hit rock bottom after that. And it's only after that, that I was, I was able to sort of see through it and find that larger purpose of my life. And I think that's what really got me through that moment because yes, I had lost him and I quit my job to be with him, 
but it also suddenly opened up this opportunity, this opportunity to leave Germany, yeah. leave Egypt, to leave this life. And that's what I held on to because I think I've always had this sense of, of, of a purpose, of a bigger purpose. And I had lost so much, but in doing that, it opened up the space for me. Um, and again, this is the message of the book and the, what I hope people come out of it with is that through these tragedies, I'm not saying they're not difficult. I'm not saying you're not going to ha- go through absolute hell and sadness and despair and heartbreak, but there can also be sort of a light at the end, um, you know, a creation of something bigger. Yes. I mean, I didn't mean to imply superpowers on your part because the, your trajectory was very, very familiar it was just the speed of it that was amazing. Yeah. You, you sort of hit bottom and bounced back in record speed. Yeah. Um, because like I say, two days later, I think I'm right in saying yes. two days later, yeah. you're interviewing for a big job with Amnesty International. And I found this quite profound, that feeling you had lost everything gave you the courage to pursue your true calling. Yeah. Do you think that but for this catastrophe you might have bobbed along accepting a sort of level of gentle unhappiness for years or maybe forever. Yeah, I have no doubt because that that was my plan. I was sort of leaving Sky News. I knew I wanted to make this jump. In fact, the reason why I had that interview two days later is because the interview was meant to be on the day that he broke up with me. It was, it was the only time they could remote hmm. interview me and we were meant to sort of, I was meant to do the interview and then we're going to sign our marriage papers, um, you know, the civil papers. <laughs> and then we're going to have this huge party, 400 people invited in the south of France. Hugely embarrassing moment at the end. But um, never got there, as you can imagine. But my poor guests did because they'd already paid all this money to, to go oh. to the wedding that so there, there was like in, in, in June 2016, there were all of these people milling around the south of France for a wedding that didn't happen. Well, fucking Brexit is going on, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> just, just on the heels of that, too. Yeah. So um, so yeah, it was what a summer, what a summer that was. But yeah, I mean, it was meant to be that day, and so I had, you know, the, it wasn't as if I, I had sort of created this opportunity suddenly the day after he broke up with me. It was, it was always there. But I, the, the idea of making a jump was really difficult for me. Everyone was telling mm. me, like, "Are you crazy? Like, who leaves a career in conflict journalism on TV and broadcast or whatever, and the, and the money that comes with that to, to become an activist with Amnesty International?" So, you know, there. There's a little cult behavior in journalism, which which convinces you that there is nothing better to do and everyone yeah. wants your job. I can happily report that you are now with a new love. Yeah. I know listeners will want to know because I really yeah. needed to know. Like when I read that in the little postscript, I, I actually cheered. I was like, oh. yes. Thank you. Um, yes. And we just so, engaged, in fact, a few days ago. So some breaking news. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, <laughs> So there's uh, I, I I hope this one goes better. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, believe me. <laughs> so I, because I don't want to spend the whole our whole time on the past. So uh, as if we just met at a birthday party, Shireen, what do you do for a living? <laughs> so I, I I represent Amnesty International at the United Nations, and you know essentially I'm a human rights lobbyist. I lead this team of very talented and dedicated human rights advocates and we lobby governments and we lobby for change we try and change policy we try and change 
resolutions at the United Nations and sometimes we are really amazing at it and we create these new mechanisms like uh, mechanisms that will document war crimes and make sure that there's compensation and there's accountability for crimes and sometimes you know we fail and the and mm. bad things happen it's a difficult job it's almost impossible to be honest this job but at least every day i wake up knowing that it is my job to try and change things and 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 ease people's suffering you've taken a side i've taken a side i find it very interesting that often in the book by the way you speak as if you are part of the un mm. as if the un is do, did you know that you do that no quite no. a few times you you talk about uh, uh, us at the UN. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So as a, as a sideline, I found what you said about Trump and how he behaved towards the UN very interesting, that he hated playing by any rules that he hadn't basically written. Mm-hmm. Do you think this is relevant to the Conservative Party here and Brexit and the current moves to either change or leave the ECHR? Yeah. Is it that same sort of I mean, for, for the UK, it's a post-colonial hangover that we, you know, we should be writing the rules. Yeah, we shouldn't yeah. be bound by them. Do you yeah. think that, that there's a connection there? Absolutely. I think this is a really dangerous trend and it absolutely extends beyond the US, although I think that the Trump administration gave people a carte blanche to think mm. this way, to think in an isolationist, individualist way, as opposed to a sort of more global era that we were hoping we were moving towards. Um, but, you know, it, it empowered exactly the wrong people. And even after he left, the effects of, of, of that empowerment we can still see. But I, I, I do see it as part of the same trend. A lack of belief in the idea that we are all connected and what happens to me um, affects you. What I find incredible is that we can go through something like the, the the pandemic, where it was so clear to us that if you don't vaccinate everyone, it will keep coming back to your country because we live in, you know yeah. with these porous borders, and yet still countries bought out all the vaccines for their um, for their citizens and didn't think about vaccinations for some of the biggest you know lower income countries. And lo and behold, we got more and more waves of COVID. So I think that sort of lack of global thinking in, in every way where whether it's we're talking about pandemics or we're talking about climate is very very dangerous and it's um it's something we fight against every day you know human rights organizations but unfortunately it's trending in in really the wrong direction as people mm. are you know increasingly under economic strain i think as well um thinking more about themselves their home and up to their backyards and not really making the link between the importance of rights for other people and what's going on in the in, in the rest of the world affecting them but it absolutely does and it will what do you think when you see this road that the UK is traveling both personally and professionally with a Rwanda plan and barges for refugees and all of that stuff the dominant narrative i think among the my circle, I guess, yeah. is that this would make us an international pariah. But I worry that it would make us an international paradigm. I worry that the feeling out there is such that if the UK is allowed to get away with this sort of stuff, basically, we might become a blueprint for people to start ignoring the Convention on Refugees. Yeah. What, what yeah. do you think? No, I agree with you. I think it's I, I think it's really dangerous. 
And I think that there will be there will be some pariah uh, feeling amongst certain countries, right? But it would all, it'll also be a blueprint for for some. And and I, you know, unfortunately, though the UK isn't the first to go down this road. You know, we have been seeing sort of rise of rise of the right um, in in Europe and elsewhere. This sort of empowerment of dictatorships, and 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 mm. I think what we're really suffering from is is a lack of good leadership. I mean, you know, we look around the world and like, where are the leaders? that we can really point to and say this is really inspirational even or charismatic or or you know free thinking you know we had this era of of obama and merkel and and now we have you know we look around and it's it's hard to find a single person that one can really feel like they admire um so that dearth i think is really dangerous and 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 i i like you fear for the the path that the uk is taking and its possibility to be reversed Serene Tadros, thank you so much for educating me and for writing such a, a brilliantly engaging manual for survival, <laughs> I would say. Taking Sides, a memoir about love, war and changing the world is out now. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like our work, you can and should support our work. For as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon, just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of Shireen Tadros from her book. We all ask children what they want to be when they grow up. We almost never ask them what they want to do. Too often, we don't ask them to think about what contribution they want to make to the world or empower them to believe they can change it. Society shames us into thinking we're naive for even attempting to make a difference. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandreou. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Kasia Tomasiewicz and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.